William Gurnall served as a minister about 100 miles north of London during the mid-17th century. During the course of his pastorate, which lasted some uh, 35 years at the same post, I believe, uh, he was often ill. His, uh, his most well-known um, work during uh, this time of frailty was his book, The Christian in a Complete Armor. How appropriate for a suffering and struggling, struggling child of God to remember uh, God's protective mercies. Grinnell showed himself well acquainted with the mercies of God when he wrote, quote, Mercies are either extraordinary or ordinary. Our common necessities or the remarkable supplies which we receive now and then at the hand of God. Thou must not only praise Him for some extraordinary mercy that comes with such pomp and observation that all, that all your neighbors take notice of thee, but also for ordinary, everyday mercies, these common, everyday mercies. Well, this morning, as we study Psalm 11, we have the privilege of considering some of God's greatest works of mercy in world history. And it's my hope and prayer that through this study, we will come to praise Him for His extraordinary works and His ordinary works of mercy in our own lives. And so if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 111. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find Psalm 111 on page 509. 509 of the Bibles provided. I am personally persuaded that the Psalms are not a random collection of songs and poems and prayers. Uh, rather, the Psalms were compiled, I think, by a faithful and thoughtful follower of God. There are several reasons, I think, that the Psalms as a whole have been thoughtfully organized. And one of those reasons is because of what we see in the Psalms really leading up to Psalm 111. The theme of merciful redemption runs right through the Psalms that lead up to our Psalm here in Book 5 of the Psalter. Psalm 107, the first book in Book 5 of, of uh, the Psalter, Open with a call for the people of God to give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And it concluded with a call for the people of Israel to be wise and to discern that God has always been present with His people, redeeming them, delivering them, and caring for them. And this is the attitude and wisdom that we see exemplified in Psalm 108, where the psalmist expresses his confidence in God's character, his covenant love, and his sure conquest of his foes. And that leads nicely to Psalm 109, where the main idea is that the destruction of his enemies and deliverance, redemption, will come from God. And for this, God deserves our devotion and praise. Then we encounter Psalm 110, where God tells us how he will bring about the destruction of his enemies and the redemption of his people. He will destroy his enemies and redeem them through his king, who is also a priest. And in many ways, Psalm 111, the psalm that we're looking at together this morning, returns us back to the bookends of Psalm 107. And it does so by taking all of the truths in between Psalm 108 to Psalm 110 into account. In view of God's faithful works, His righteousness and enduring covenant mercy, the people of God are once again called to give thanks to the Lord and to fear Him. So let's read Psalm 111 now. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. 
He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 111 is an interesting psalm for for many reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is it's structured by an acrostic in the Hebrew language. Uh, Each new line begins with a new or different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Many acrostics in in the English uh, language, English poetry, endeavor to kind of spell out various words sometimes. But that's not so much the focus or the aim in in Hebrew poetry, really. Uh, The letters themselves do not spell out anything. Rather, they simply kind of work through the alphabet. Now, with that structure, with this structure, what this reveals is that through the beauty of poetry, the author is endeavoring to communicate the beauty and the benevolence of our God and His works from beginning to end, His works from first to last. So did you notice the focus on God's works as we read through the psalm? God's works are mentioned there in verses 2, 3, 4, 6, and 7. And even though the word works is not mentioned in verses 5 and 8 and 9, I do think that we can understand and view God's provision of food, His faithfulness and sending redemption to His people under the umbrella of God's providential works. Praise of God's praise of God uh, brackets the whole psalm. You may have noticed there. Look at the beginning of verse 1. It begins with praise the Lord. And now if you look down to the end of the psalm, the last four words there, His praise endures forever. God is worthy of praise for His works from beginning to end. That's the message of Psalm 111. One sentence, that's the message of Psalm 111. God is worthy of praise for His works from beginning to end. And we're going to study this psalm under three headings. Number one, the praise of the Lord. Number two, the works of the Lord. And number three, the fear of the Lord. And if you're taking notes, those three uh, headings are going to form the outline of the rest of this sermon. So let's begin with our first, uh, first heading, first point, the praise of the Lord. Read verse 1 again. Just verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright. In the congregation. See verse 1. It introduces the first response that we ought to have to the works of the Lord. God's great works in history ought to call forth declarations of praise from His people. But what does it mean to praise God? It simply means to give God the honor and glory due to His name. It means, that, it means to declare that God is worthy of worship for His actions and His attributes. We thought about this a little bit uh, last week from Psalm 100. Uh, there we thought about what it means to praise God in distinction from what it means to give thanks to God. Which is the very next thing that the psalmist declares he will do in verse 1. While praise means declaring that God is worthy of of worship for His actions and attributes. On the other hand, thanksgiving means expressing gratitude for how God's 
attributes and actions have brought good to God's world and to God's people. We're going to see how that thanks and praise kind of works itself out in this psalm, in Psalm 111. We take a look at God's works. But for now, let's not pass over too quickly that phrase, with my whole heart. I mean, surely I wasn't the only one who was feeling some conviction when I read those words. How often do we give to our God half-hearted thanks? Thank you for this food. Amen. I'm reminded of the story of Jesus cleansing the ten lepers in Luke's Gospel. So, let's just go there. Uh, Keeping one finger here in Psalm 111, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We're going to take a look very briefly at verses 11 to 19. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. If if you're uh, looking in the Bibles provided, that's on page 876. Luke 17, verses 11 to 19. So, Jesus, He has begun to make His way to Jerusalem, to the cross, to die uh, for the sins of His people. But along the way, He continues this merciful ministry of healing. Uh, Read Luke 17. Let me read this for us. 17 verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as He entered a village, He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When He saw them, He said to them, Go. And show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I wonder, do you see the difference between wholehearted thanks and half-hearted thanks? The difference is faith in God. It is a humble recognition that we do not have the resources that we need but that in His mercy, God has generously given them to us. You see, what our shallow thanksgiving to God may reveal is a shallow understanding of our needs and a shallow understanding of God's mercy and grace. Too often, we take God's generosity toward us for granted. Sometimes, our unspoken assumption is that these good gifts are owed to us. Living in one of the wealthiest regions, in the wealthiest nation in the world, we don't often see the need to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We assume that it will turn up. Turning back to Psalm 111, which is on page 509 of the Bibles provided. Turning back to Psalm 111. Let us imitate the psalmist. Let us purpose to give thanks with our whole heart, recognizing that we are needy people and that God is a generous God who so graciously gives. Let us purpose to give thanks, recognizing our God's generosity toward us. Let's also take note of where the psalmist purposes to give thanks. He purposes to give thanks in the company of the upright, in the congregation. 
Here, the psalmist is simply declaring that he will publicly give thanks to God. And part of me wonders whether or not this is a, a psalm of the king of Israel. See, Psalm 111, it comes on the heels of Psalm 110, which is decidedly a royal psalm. Psalm 110 addresses the throne of God's king. Psalm 111 may very well be a public response of thanks and praise from the king of Israel. Whatever the case may be, it's always appropriate for God's people to give thanks to God publicly. You know, as a church, we gather here each Lord's Day. It's appropriate for us before the service, during the service, and, and after the service to give thanks to God. Before we, we might give thanks to God, before the service we might give thanks to God through our, our conversations with one another. And during the service we will often give thanks to God with one voice as we sing or as we pray. Maybe in our conversations that follow the service we should endeavor to share our thanks to God with, with one another. Think back over this last week or month or year. Think about how you were in need. And think about how God met your need. And share your thanks with another brother or sister in this congregation. The truth is, brothers or sisters, brothers and sisters, our, our thankfulness or our thanklessness has an impact on our relationship with the Lord. It says something about the disposition of our heart toward Him. Our thankfulness or our thanks, thanklessness has an impact on our relationship with the Lord and really with one another. Think about what your thankfulness to God, what it expresses and exemplifies to another fellow brother or sister in Christ. It might, the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, might just use your giving thanks to God to encourage the thankfulness of another brother or sister in Christ. And their thankfulness might appropriately encourage your own thankfulness in your heart. Let us give thanks to God with our whole hearts by His grace and help. Well, having considered the praise of the Lord, let's now turn and consider our second point, the works of the Lord. And as we do, uh, let's read verses 2 to 9 here. Psalm 111, verses 2 to 9. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. You know, one of the things that stood out to me as I read through uh, this psalm throughout the week was the way in which the psalmist describes the works of the Lord. There's a certain kind of magnitude and majesty with which he uh, describes the works of the Lord. Just consider kind of verse 2 right there, the opening. Great are the works of the Lord. Verse 3, you'll take a look. Full of splendor and majesty is His work. His works are wondrous. Verse 4, His works are full of power. Verse 6, the Lord's works are not minuscule displays of His might. They are great, wondrous, awesome, and majestic. It seems to me that the psalmist has studied the works of the Lord. His descriptions disclose His delight in them. Here He is teaching us by example. Do we 
delight in the works of the Lord. One indication of whether or not we, uh, one indication may be, uh, whether or not we delight uh, in the Lord, works of the Lord is how we describe His works. So, so when we talk about what God has done in creation and redemption, how do we describe the works of the Lord? Do we use superlative terms like the psalmist does? Do we use appropriate adjectives to describe the grandeur of God's works? The point is not really to show everyone how skilled you are in the English language or that you've been reading the thesaurus at night, but rather to accurately describe the greatness of our God and His works and to disclose our delight in Him. The psalmist's Poetry concerning the works of the Lord forces us not only to observe the the majesty of God's works, but His poetry also forces us to come to terms with the fact that God's works have been made manifest in time and in space. They can be studied, verse 2. They can be remembered, verse 4. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. God's works have been shown, verse 6. He has shown His people the power of His works. In, In all of these, perhaps... It is verse 9 which makes it most clear to us that God's works have been made manifest. Verse 9, God sent redemption to His people. This tips us off to the fact that God's works were made manifest for the sake of His mercy being made known. In view of God's works, we're told in verse 4 that the Lord is gracious and merciful. In verse 5, we're told that the Lord provided food for His people. God mercifully met the needs of His people. In verse 6, we're told that God kept His covenant promises and gave His people the nations as an inheritance. And of course, if redemption is anything, it is God mercifully rescuing His people from certain destruction. But, But all of this raises a question, doesn't it? What are these majestic, manifest, and merciful works that the psalmist is going on and on about? Well, I think that they're quite simply God's great acts in redemptive history. In particular, I believe that the author of this psalm means to call to our minds the events surrounding the Exodus, the giving of the law, the journey to Mount Sinai, and the conquest of Canaan. Take a look at verse 5. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. When did God provide food for His people? Well, He provided food for His people on their way to Mount Sinai in Exodus 16. So, uh, keeping one finger here in Psalm 111, turn your Bibles to Exodus 16. Uh, the Bible's provided, that's page 58. Exodus 16. God has, He has rescued His people from slavery in Egypt. They are free men and women marching to Mount Sinai. And now, let's read the first seven verses of chapter 16. They set out from Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what 
they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Uh, Exodus 16, all of it really, is taken up with this food complaint. The Israelites expressed that they would have rather died with full stomachs in Egypt than hungry, free men and women who have experienced time and time again the grace and mercy of God. There appears to be an utter blindness to all that they have experienced from the hand of the Lord in two short months. Ten plagues. The preservation of their sons. Plundering the Egyptians as they left the country. Safe passage through the Red Sea. The defeat of the Egyptian army. Sweet water at Mara, And the desert oasis of Elim. Not to mention that God has made His presence known to His people through the pillar of cloud by day, important in a desert, and a pillar of fire by night, important when it's dark. Is it any wonder that the psalmist might describe the works of the Lord as majestic, manifest, and merciful to God's people? The people of Israel complain about food and God, in a majestic, manifest, and merciful way, feeds them from heaven. Great are the works of the Lord. In the words of Psalm 111.15, He provides food for those who fear Him. Psalm 111 also looks back on another event in Israel's history. Verse 6, I think, has the conquest of Canaan in view. When the psalmist writes, He has shown the people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Very often in the Old Testament, the land of Canaan is referred to the land of the nations. Let's think about this for a moment from the book of Joshua, the conquest of the nations. So turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua where the people are marching into Canaan. And there are a number of places that we could go in the book of Joshua, but we've got to go to Jericho, right? We've got to go to Joshua chapter 6. So turn to Joshua chapter 6. That's on page 181 of the Bibles provided. Now, truth be told, that the story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho does not begin in chapter 6. It actually begins in chapter 5, the tail end of chapter 5, right there in verse 13. So let's pick up reading in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So in these verses, in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, a man with a drawn sword in his hand appears to Joshua. Now, a drawn sword is a form of a threat. And, and this description only occurs two other times in the Old Testament. And both instances refer to an angel of the Lord. 
Joshua doesn't seem to recognize the angel of the Lord right away. And he asks, so are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Joshua wants to know, is this man, is he for Israel or is he for Jericho? And the angel of the Lord, he kind of strangely replies. He says, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the commander of the heavenly army who will give strength to the armies of Israel as they march forward into battle. Joshua, he is the commander of the Lord's earthly army, but they will draw their direction and strength from the Lord as they fight. Given the recognition of this commander's authority, Joshua, he falls down and worships him. It seems that Joshua is maybe beginning to understand and recognize that this commander is actually God himself. Joshua asked the angel of the Lord, what side was he on? And his response was basically, no, 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 no. You're on my side. I, I'm leading this charge here. That's what the angels effectively say. And, and we know what happens next. Joshua and the people of Israel march around Jericho in accordance with the Lord's commands. And on the seventh day, they do so seven times. And they blow their trumpets and the walls fall flat. The walls come a tumbling down. The people of Israel conquer Jericho, the first great defeat in conquering the nations found in Canaan. And the story concludes like this, at the end of Joshua chapter 6, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. As the story of the book of Joshua marches on, we see the people of Israel begin to dispossess the nations and receive the land as their inheritance. Now, with this in mind, let's go back to Psalm 111. That's uh, verse 6, uh, page 509 of the Bible is provided. Let's just think about the Lord's majestic, manifest, and merciful works. Here's verse 6 again. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. We can think of Jericho and the walls falling down. We can think of uh, the book of Joshua, the sun standing still, and so many other mighty deeds of the Lord, and say that the Lord certainly did show His people His power as He gave them the promised land of Canaan as their inheritance. We've got a great food work in verse 5, a great land work in verse 6, and in verses 7 and 8, we've got a great law work. Read verses 7 and 8 again there. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts, His laws, are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. So here the, the works of God's hands are described as faithful and just. Faithful can also be translated as righteous, right. Just certainly has undertones of being right. What, what gives it away though that we're talking about the law is mentioned there when we see the word God's precepts. Precepts are, are rules. They're regulations of conduct. Those precepts are trustworthy in the sense that they are a true revelation of God's character. And since they are a reflection of God's character, they are abiding truths. Furthermore, God's precepts, His commands, are not merely to be kept, but they're to be performed, worked out in the lives of His people. We've talked about God's great food work and land work as being majestic, manifest, and merciful. But how can we say that about the giving of God's law? Moreover, how can we call it a work of God's hand? Well, 
I, I don't think that we should be overly literal about this. After all, we're, we're reading poetry here. Um, nevertheless, if you really wanted to kind of force the issue um, about the giving of law being a work of God's hand, you really only need to remember uh, Moses, what Moses recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. And there we read, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with a finger of God. And on them were all the words of the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Those words written by the finger of God are none other than the Ten Commandments. And if the description of God's giving of the law on the mountain in the midst and out of the fire does not account for being majestic and manifest and merciful, then we would do well to remember the words of Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to 19, where we read, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. Was it not merciful of God to protect and guard his people from destruction even as he spoke to them? One of the things that kind of should come to our minds, kind of a question, what's the common connection between God's great food work, His land work, and His law work? I'll give you a hint, it's right here in our text, sitting right between the food work and the land work. Why does God perform a majestic, manifest, and merciful food, land, and law work? It's because, as the end of verse 5 says, He remembers His covenant forever. What is more, this phrase appears one more time in Psalm 111. It's tied to the great salvific event in the Old Testament. If you asked an ancient Israelite, what was the greatest work? You've got to pick the, like, the number one. What was the greatest work that God has ever done in your history that I think without hesitation the ancient Israelites would say? The Exodus. Absolutely. That's what verse 9 is referring to. Verse 9. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. How do we know that redemption, the redemption spoken of here in verse 9 refers to the Exodus? How do we know it refers to the Lord rescuing and redeeming His people from slavery in Egypt? Well, because the Lord Himself referred to the Exodus as a redemptive work. So listen to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Here is the Lord telling Moses what to tell the people of Israel as they got ready to see the holy and awesome deeds of the Lord as He crushes Pharaoh. And Egypt. The Lord says to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. And the mere mention of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reminds us of God's covenant love and promises. And I love how, how the psalmist has really been building to this Exodus work in his poem. The mention of the food work and the land work and the law work should have brought the Exodus work into the peripheral vision of his readers. 
The only way that the food and land and law work could have taken place is if the exodus, God's great redemptive work, had taken place. And to this point, I wonder if you've got kind of a nagging question in the back of your mind. Have you been asking why? Why would God do all of these great works? Well, it's simply because He made a covenant commitment to Abraham. And our God is a covenant-keeping God. He will never let this covenant commitment to His people fail. But perhaps you think to yourself, oh, okay, fine, that's, that's fair enough. But what does this have to do with me? What do these, this food work and this land work and law work and exodus work, what do they have to do with me today as a Christian? And my response to you is everything. They've got everything to do with you as a Christian. God's covenant with Abraham was not finally realized when Israel made its way into the promised land of Canaan. Having been freed from Egypt, fed in the desert, governed by God's laws, all of those things were but types and shadows of what was to come in Jesus Christ. We look back on those great works and realize that Jesus has fulfilled them in all of His work. In John, John's Gospel, we learn that Jesus is the great food work. This is what Jesus proclaimed in John's Gospel, John chapter 6. Verse 31 to 35. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, Note Jesus' words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you are a Christian, Jesus is your bread. He is your salvation, your eternal life. And you feed on him by faith in your heart. And Jesus, he accomplishes not just the great bread work, but the great land work. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to leave them. He's going to die. He's going to be buried and resurrected and ascended into heaven. He will leave the earth to eventually bring his followers to the promised land of heaven. And so what does he say to his disciples to comfort them? He says to them in John 14, verses 1 to 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You see, friends, Jesus is coming again, and He's going to bring us into that heavenly land. Just as Joshua, through really the army, uh, the angel of the Lord, the armies of heaven, bringing the people of Israel into the promised land. Jesus brings us into the land. In Jesus, a great law work was done. See, He fulfilled it. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he told his hearers that unless their righteousness surpassed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, those great keepers of the law, unless their righteousness surpassed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they would never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who's going to get into the kingdom of heaven by then? By their own righteousness. They can't surpass that of the Pharisees and scribes. It's only through Jesus' great law-keeping work He came, he said in Matthew 5, 17, 
to fulfill the law. And it is only because of Jesus Christ and His inauguration of the new covenant in His blood that God's law, once written on stone, is now written on our hearts. And in Jesus, the great redemptive exodus has taken place. Like the ancient people of Israel, we too have been enslaved. We have been enslaved to sin. And the good news that the Apostle John proclaims in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, is that Jesus loves us and that He has freed us from our sins by His blood. Because Jesus, because of Jesus' great redemptive work, in the words of Romans chapter 6, verse 22, we have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. See, friends, this is the majestic work that God has done in Jesus Christ. This is the work that we give Him praise for. God has made His redemptive work manifest in this world. And He has done so in mercy. The question that each one of us faces here this morning is whether or not we will embrace God's great work in Jesus Christ. Whether or not we will embrace Jesus Himself. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, I implore you to consider God's great work in Jesus Christ. Have you been redeemed? Have you recognized that without God, you are lost and wandering about in this life? Have you recognized that your need for a land in which to dwell is not a a crime-free, a convenient and comfortable land, but God's heavenly land? Have you recognized that you've rebelled against the law of God? That you've spurned God Himself in deciding to live according to your own law, the ways in which you want to live, the ways in which best suit you? Have you recognized your slavery to sin? How you you keep doing the things that you don't want to do and how you feel powerless to stop? Have you recognized the foolishness of life without God? Have you recognized God's authority over creation and yet rejected His authority over you, one of His creatures? And have you recognized from Psalm 111 that in His covenant love, He can redeem you in Jesus Christ? On the cross, Jesus laid down His life in the place of sinners like you and me. Though He was sinless, Jesus, He died bearing the punishment due to the sins of all of those would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. Jesus laid down His life in love, only to take it up again three days later. God raised Jesus from the dead to redeem sinners from being eternally lost, to set sinners free from the chains of sin, to redeem them from eternal death, and to bring sinners into their desired land, heaven with God. Believe that Jesus lived for you, that He died for you, And that He was raised for you. He lived the perfect life that we've not lived. He died the death that our sins deserve. He suffered the hellish torments of God's wrath for sinners. And God raised Him from the dead to prove that we might be accepted as righteous in God's sight if we would turn from our sins and put our faith in Him. In Jesus Christ, we see God's majestic, manifest, and merciful work. This work that Psalm 111 And the whole Old Testament look forward to. And so we should all place our faith in Him now. 
And if you want to know more about God's redeeming love through Jesus Christ, please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend, Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about than this good news in Jesus Christ. When we talk about faith in Jesus Christ, what we're really talking about is the fear of the Lord, which is where Psalm 111 concludes. So let's briefly reflect on our third and final point, the fear of the Lord. And as we do, let's read verse 10 again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. One of the main applications, if not the main application, of considering God's majestic, manifest, and merciful works is to lead us to fear Him. As one commentator said, the revelation of the Lord's character and His fidelity to the covenant as demonstrated in His acts of redemption and His precepts brings out the royal character of God's rule over His people. He calls for a response of wisdom in which God's people express fear for Him by submitting to His rule and following His precepts. Even as God began and completed His work in creation, humans must begin life with the fear of the Lord and complete it by following His precepts. God's great works and ways ought to lead us to an end of putting our hope and our trust in ourselves and to put our whole hope in the God who works in history, who leads and guides history for His glory and the good of His people. And let us notice here the, the intricate and really interconnectedness between fearing the Lord and wisdom. Wisdom comes from God, is revealed by God. That's what we learn from Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. If we are to gain wisdom, retain wisdom, and live in wisdom, then we must come to fear, to place our faith in the God who gives wisdom. It is the fool who thinks he is wise. And the one who is wise fears he is a fool. And so pursues the Lord and His revealed wisdom in His world and in His word. That is where we find God's wisdom. In His natural revelation, the world, and especially in His supernatural revelation, His Word, the Bible. The wise practice God's wisdom. Fearing the Lord, trusting Him, they take Him at His Word, believing that His ways are best. Children, youth, young adults, do you recognize that the wisdom of God is not just for your parents or even for adults generally? It is for you too. The foolishness of the world is speaking to us all and it is doing so constantly from various forms, television and movies, social media, books, magazines, blogs, friends, teachers, acquaintances. Sometimes they are communicating God's wisdom, but sometimes they are not. We're being told what we should wear, how we should live and act, what choices we should make, what we should be offended by, what priorities and causes we should fight for. But how do we know the difference between the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God? 
we do so first by recognizing that God's word, the Bible, is a treasure of heavenly instruction. And second, by measuring all that we see and hear against God's word, for it is the supreme standard by which all human conduct and opinions should be tried. This afternoon, let me encourage you to talk with your parents or a mature Christian friend about what that looks like. What does it look like to consider the things we're being told in this world in comparison with the things that we're told in God's Word? That would be a great conversation to have this afternoon. How do we practically work out wisdom? Ultimately, we submit our plans, our desires, our hopes, and our futures to our God and His wisdom. You see, His praise will endure forever. Ours will not. It is here that we come to see the interconnectedness of worship, works, and wisdom, which is where I'd like for us to conclude this morning. Those who are wise worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Those who are wise worship the Lord for His great acts in creation and redemption. Wisdom is worship lived out. And worship is wisdom lived out. And what binds the two together are God's works, His demonstration of His might, His mind, and His mercy. Our hearts and lives will render praise to the Lord as we live in light of His wisdom and works. And since His praise will endure forever, let us not fail to praise Him today, or any day, and every day that He gives us until that last day. Let's pray together.